Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoop. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. And thank you for joining us here on Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the show. Joining me are our hosts, John and Marsha Mountshoop. We'll be talking about Super Bowl 55 taking place this weekend in Tampa between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, our annual Super Bowl episode. We do the predictions at the very end. So if you want to hear whom we think is going to win, which really means do we want to know who John thinks is going to win since he was the one who coached in the NFL and probably would be the football expert among the three of us, hang around to the very, very end. Um, of course, we're going to talk about how the pandemic has played out in the NFL this year. And one way this we will see it this weekend is the attendance at the Super Bowl. And for the first time, a team is playing in its own home, sta- home stadium. But that's not going to be the home field advantage it typically would be because they won't be able to have fans in it this year. But time about it, as we just begin uh, this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor, said, do not host Super Bowl parties. So let's talk about that just right now, this game taking place at this particular moment in our history. What do we do? Well, we don't have uh, friends over for a big Super Bowl party. And that's really sad because this is really Uh, like an American holiday, Super Bowl Sunday is. Uh, But the way things are right now, you just can't have uh, a a big Super Bowl party and a large gathering. It'd be horribly irresponsible, and I'm certainly with Dr. Fauci on that. Um, I just, um, just a little tidbit of interest. Um, We never had Super Bowl parties. Like in all those years that we were, in the NFL and stuff like Super Bowl Sunday was kind of a day of mourning for every coach that's not in it. You're just kind of like, you know, so I know our Super Bowls are just kind of like hang out, try to think about, especially the years where we got close. Yeah. Maybe someday. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe someday. Just wanted to throw in that little interesting tidbit for people. (laughs) <laughs> right, I know, I know there were a couple close years, and I know uh, your closest year was with the Carolina Panthers, but you got that nice uh, that nice uh, cons- consolation gift of going to Hawaii. I'm sure that wasn't too bad. That was fun. It, that was good. I remember we were winning at halftime at Lambeau. It was a cold game, and I was I can remember thinking, oh, my gosh, we might be going to the Super Bowl. And then Brett Favre came out. The second half was on fire, and we ended up losing. I was just a young coach, I think 26. And I was crushed. And I'll never forget uh, our special teams coordinator, a great coach named Brad Sealy, put his arm around me and said, John, don't worry. We're going to Hawaii for 10 days. <laughs> and it was a good time in Hawaii. Boy, that could be a whole show in and of itself. There's some Brett Favre stories from that time. I tell you that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, no more Hawaii trips as they don't play the Pro Bowl there. That's anymore, right. So. That's right. 
All right, so let's look at it now. The NFL has gotten through its season. It did not have to cancel any games, had to postpone a few and work some schedule around, schedule arounds to make sure the season was played. But um, we have come to the end of the NFL season here with the Super Bowl. It has it has weathered the pandemic. I want you guys to talk about that. In some of the previous shows, you've really focused on how college sports have dealt with the pandemic. NFL, obviously different professionals. They're being paid. It's like going to work for them. But what do you take out of how the NFL has handled the pandemic this year? Well, I'll say this, you know, I was skeptical about playing football at all, you know, but what the NFL did really is nothing short of remarkable. And and let's just review, you know, last spring on March, in March, the NFL and uh, the Players Association agreed to a 10-year labor agreement. And almost immediately, they kind of had to go in and renegotiate that because we're in uncharted waters uh, with COVID. And here's what the players demanded. The players demanded this. And believe me, believe me when I say college players don't make any demands. But the players demanded this. One, they were going to have daily testing. And two, players were going to be able to opt out if they wanted to. And the daily testing came with a price tag. I mean, overall, the testing, uh, the NFL going into this week has tested 950,000 individuals. And it was a price tag of uh, $95 million to do it. Now, that's offset by a $10 billion contract. And so if you do the math, 10 billion is a heck of a lot more than 95 million. But what they did was unbelievable. Only 67 players in the NFL did opt out. So that's the first part. They tested and they allowed players to opt out. And they didn't test biweekly. They tested every single day, everybody that came into that building. Now, in week four, they kind of hit some speed bumps. The Tennessee Titans had a huge outbreak with 23 players and coaches getting messed up. And throughout the season, they actually shuffled 19 different games. And it was crazy, Matt. You know, I think there was one time during the season we were watching the Pittsburgh Steelers play the Ravens on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night or afternoon, like at three o'clock. I didn't understand it. It was crazy. But And that was a game that was originally supposed to be played on Thanksgiving night. I think that was delayed five days. That's exactly right. And so with 19 games shuffled around, they still got all the games in in the season. And for the first time ever, there was a game played on every day of the week in an NFL season. But here's the thing that the NFL did that really made this happen. And, you know, they went to this thing where anybody, uh, they, they termed it high-risk contacts, high-risk contacts close contacts is what they termed it. And anybody that was anywhere close to a person uh, uh, who tested positive, well, even if that person had a negative test, they still quarantined them for five days. 
And of those people that they quarantined for five days, 40 of those people actually ended up having negative tests. And so this kept it from spreading. And an interesting thing on this, this isolating of people that were in high risk, close contact, this is going on right now. Two prominent players for the Kansas City Chiefs, a wide receiver, Demarcus Robinson, and their uh, center, Daniel, Daniel Kilgore, right now are being quarantined. And they've been quarantined for, by the time game time comes, for up to five days because they were in the presence of a barber who ultimately tested positive for COVID. Robinson and Kilgore never tested positive. They never have, but they're isolated because the NFL realized in two to five days, you could still test positive. And so they have a number of tests that they have to pass before they'll be eligible to play in the game. But I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. When Johns Hopkins University said, as long as you keep the threshold below 5%, they said the threshold, if it goes above 5% of positives, you got to shut down. The NFL tested every single person every single day, and they kept the positivity rate at 0.076. Now, you can argue whether they should have played or not played, but what they did right there, <laughs> that's remarkable. And maybe it's kind of sad that they can do it for the NFL, but they can't do it for teachers here, you know, in in public schools. But you got to give them credit. They worked their plan and they got that $10 billion TV contract. And I do want to go to you about that, Marsha. Um, the power dynamics of this one that the NFL was able to do this, but we've watched local and national and state governments struggle to do really anything uh, throughout this. And to the, the power dynamics, which we're getting into a lot in this show that the NFL has a players union, they have power um, compared to maybe some of the other professional leagues. Uh, the NFL union is weaker, but they were still able to force quite a bit here uh, to their advantage. It's hard to, to look at this not through the lens of the tragedy of 450,000 people dead in this country. Um, what could have been if we had had a more um, organized, you know, really focused effort to save people's lives? Um, and I think while it is amazing what the NFL has done, I'm, I'm not surprised because when the NFL garners its resources behind any effort, it's usually going to work. Um, and that's what makes people, including this person sitting right here, frustrated when, with the NFL when they don't garner their resources behind issues that have a real impact on human beings and human lives. So um, when we compare what they've done with COVID and this, and again, a very compressed amount of time, um, putting so many resources, putting so many systems and practices and, and really a discipline around how they did it, 
why they couldn't have over these years and years of eroding health done similar things with CTE and, and head injuries. So it's hard for me as a theologian, as a social theorist, as in somebody who's, you know, looks at things with an ethical framework to, to not feel a tinge of the tragic in that, just kind of seeing what they can do and knowing what they haven't done. Um, And I also think that just another lens in terms of um, how our country um, galvanizes around certain things and incentivizes certain things, this is, this is capitalism's, you know, priority list. You know, this is a billion dollar business. We're going to make sure it can go, you know. Um, and we're going to use our resources to make sure it can go. It's not about the well-being of players. Um, I'm sure I, I haven't talked to any players personally after during this season. John, you may have. But um, I'm sure there were some real hardships for them, especially people that had families. They pro- And I know there were for NBA players, too, that, you know, once you commit to this, you're in. You can't, you can't, like, leave to go because your wife's having a baby or something. I don't know how they handled all that stuff, but this is not like it was fun and games for these guys. Our son is on a professional rugby team now, and um, this is, you know, much lower grade, much lower level of magnitude, but they are really having to make a lot of sacrifices. They can't go out. They can't do stuff. This is, you know, the team has really asked for, a hundred percent buy-in for this, the systems that they have in place to, to stay safe. They're testing twice a week, not every day. You know, it's again, not the same order of magnitude, but it's a, it's a way of life. It's not just a job. It's a, it's a way of life. And I think something I know, John, you had mentioned in Marsha too, and some most previous or most recent episodes that we have done here, um, as the pandemic has gone on, about how there was no stopping to think about how maybe we might change how business was being done, and not just monetarily, just how things were being done every day. And it was really listening to your answer there, Marsha, of the NFL kind of said, "Look, we cannot not have a season. We have a." billion dollar, $10 billion contract, I believe is what you said, John. There's no way they could not have a season, similar to what the NCAA said, similar to all the other professional leagues. Um, and I, I, it really seems to be, to me, and you can speak more about this, Marsha, of that is, is that really the takeaway of this pandemic here, is that we just never were able to sit and think, at least in the United States, that we have to change some things or to stop and think about how we might change some things to respond to this? Well, often, you know, when we're faced with um, a real challenge to our most foundational values, um, we rarely opt for the, hey, let's take the deep, you know, radical transformational route. <laughs> we, we most often take the let's avoid those bigger questions route and let's bend over backwards. And even if it costs people their lives, we're going to figure out a way to keep doing the thing. We're going to figure out a way to maintain the status quo. And and in a capitalist society like ours, the status quo is wealth accumulation. So that's the top priority. And that priority was um, preserved. You know, it was honored. Um, If there had really been Um, a gut check, a values shift, a transformational moment 
then we would have started to think about what does it mean that our sense of urgency is completely built on the commodification of human beings. Now that that would have threatened to bring the whole thing down. So again, I'm not surprised that that's not the road that was opted for, but it is a missed opportunity if we really want our, our culture to be a healthy one and we really want all human beings to be valued for who they are and not what they produce. Um, for me, the takeaway of COVID but is that um, there are enough people with enough power that do want it to be this way, that people are valued based on what they produce, um, that, that we're, this is where we are and this is where we're going to be for a long, long time. If a pandemic doesn't take it down, um, I don't know what, what would. <laughs> and we'll come back here on Going Deep in just a moment to continue the conversation. Please stay with us. You're listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the show, speaking with our hosts, John and Marsha Mount-Shoop. It's our annual Super Bowl episode. We've been talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the league has uh, weathered that, but there is what Marsha's in the past called the ongoing pandemic, the original pandemic of the United States, and that is racism and white supremacy. This is also the first season in the NFL uh, after the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed. Colin Kaepernick still did not play a down in the NFL this year, still uh, basically blacklisted from playing in the league. So let's talk about that. How did the league handle that? And then what was the election of 2021? How it also handled that? Because there was no way that politics in this country was not going to impact virtually every industry in 2020. Uh, Sports and the NFL certainly not excluded from that. Well, it's been interesting. I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways to kind of virtue signal during um, so- times of social unrest, um, depending on who your audience is and who, what kind of virtues you're trying to um, to signal and say that that you have. One of the things the NFL did was use um, what's what's known as the Black National Anthem. Um, to open up some of their games, some of their early games. They also um, had some, you know, again, some optical allyship and, you know, patches on shirts or, and and they used language of um, racism is wrong and things like that. They did not name the kind of originate, original, issue, the original sin of white supremacy or structural racism, they didn't use those terms. They focus more in terms of um, interpersonal relationships, that no one should be hated for their color of skin or that, um, you know, there's room for all kinds of differences. It's more of a kind of multicultural vision that they're casting out. Um, it really wasn't solidarity around issues of justice. You didn't hear a lot of language about justice. It was it was more kind of a version of let's all just get along, kind of like we're not racist here in the NFL, <laughs> kind of, um, and that's what I would call optical allyship and not real, real solidarity. Um, there were a few pockets of players in the NFL who 
took bolder steps, who used bolder language, who who took a knee or whatever. Um, but that was almost like this eerie kind of echo underneath all of it, that the way people reacted to Colin Kaepernick and his, from where I sit, very moderated um, statement, very respectful way of making a statement, and this more preferred kind of softer statement against racism, um, we stand against racism, is not really the same as we stand with black and brown bodies um, against state-sanctioned violence um, that's killing people in their communities. So those are two very, very different statements. And what we saw in the NFL was more of the softer kind, I would say. The NBA was a different story. Well, it it seems to me that the NFL kind of did two things. They had two strategies. One, they were going to throw a ton of money (laughs) at at the issues. And, you know, just leading up to the Super Bowl, just recently, the NFL announced 13 new grants for nonprofit organizations in what they call a social justice initiative called Inspire Change. Okay. So that announcement is as they're leading up to the Super Bowl. And to to date, over $95 million have been donated to those 13 agencies. And the NFL is committing $250 million over a 10 year period. That's significant. It is. But we're, we're in the large scale of a $16 billion a year industry. million over 10 years might not be as great a percentage as we think. So one, they threw money at it. And two, owners did realize that the cost-benefit analysis of if a player is going to stand up or kneel down or make a statement on social justice, players were not going to be penalized by the club for that. Now that's not necessarily, or by the NFL, that's not necessarily a ringing endorsement of, Hey, we stand for change. It's more, you know, I think Jerry Jones, who's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys and probably the most high profile owner in the NFL said, and I quote, we all do understand where I stand relative to the national anthem and the flag. On the other hand, I really do recognize the time we're in. Not necessarily a ringing endorsement for, hey, I want the Cowboys to, you know, or, or the Cowboys are allowed to kneel down. And Additionally, you know, whether it's Michael Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Browns, or or Woody Johnson of the Jets, I mean, these guys have donated millions, a lot more money to the Donald Trump campaign in the Republican campaign than they have to uh, uh, inspire change in their uh, social change program within the NFL. These owners have donated a lot more money to the Donald Trump campaign. Well, the, the other thing that you can clearly read in, in any of the statements that especially owners put out was 
very few are still, if they either they don't get it or they're not going to let on that they get it. And again, so who is your audience? Who are you virtue signaling to? Because if somebody's still talking about the anthem and the flag about what Colin Kaepernick did, they don't, they either don't get it or they don't want to show that they get it because it's not about the anthem and the flag. It's about state sanctioned violence against black and brown people in our country. And so if somebody really wanted to sick virtue signal um, solidarity or justice and transformation in our, in our criminal justice system or in policing or anything like that, then they, then the, the word anthem and flag wouldn't be in what they said. They would, they would say, you know, things like our country has some work to do around racial equity or around the way or around our, our, our internal biases or around the ways that we train police or whatever. We would have other ways of, of signaling solidarity with these issues that would have that and the word anthem and flag wouldn't be in there. So and, and again, if you look at the NBA, you did hear that rhetoric. You did see those stances. You did see people at every level of um, the the organization making statements in which they used the lexicon of um, dismantling white supremacy. Um, that just it's it's just a whole different conversation if you're really in solidarity with that with with black and brown people in the movement there's there are words you can say that that show that you are listening And you talked about there in that answer quite a few things, but the power of philanthropy uh, to, to, to affect change and the NFL gave money, but as John sort of broke those numbers down in comparison, it wasn't really that big in to, you know, what they make annually. So again, as the most, as the most prominent sports professional sports league in the United States, what, what would it take for the NFL either financially or in its power structures or, uh, really in anything throughout its business model, what would it really take for the NFL to actually affect some change instead of just, I think what you were saying, Marcia, this very PR-driven push for social change? I know, I know you have something, John. Can I say something just real quick about um, the philanthropic um, kind of let's dedicate some of our resources to it? The issues we're facing around... Um, that the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for Black Lives is trying to draw our collective attention to. These are structural, systemic issues. And the nonprofit industrial complex, the the way that philanthropic money flows, those are often, um, those are getting into, you know, those can get into the hands of some good black and brown led organizations that are doing things in communities that are truly transformative. And I'm certainly not saying that's a bad thing, but if we want structural systemic change, we must bring to bear the pressure of our political power and our structural power on the systems of our country. So you look at, 
you talk about what the NFL did with COVID or what they do when they want to build a new stadium. What do you think they do? They don't go the philanthropic route. They go the political route. <laughs> they talk to local politicians. They they lobby senators. They get in, you know, they they work the political system and that kind of circulation. And if the NFL decided we're not going to tolerate state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people, we stand in solidarity because most of our organization is, we are dependent on black and brown people for our organization to thrive. So we're going to we're going to put the weight of the NFL behind this issue and we're going to put some pressure on senators and we're going to put some pressure on other elected officials that would make an impact that would change the conversation. When you talk about systems, if you look at the NFL, there's 32 teams in the NFL. Okay. And the most powerful people, in an NFL team are one, the owner, two, the general manager, and three, the head coach. Those are the top three most prominent and powerful positions in the NFL. 27 of the 32 NFL head coaches are white. 28 of the 32 NFL general managers are white. 31 of the 32 NFL owners are white meaning 86 of the 96 prominent decision makers in the NFL, that's 90% are white. Contrast that in a league that's made up of some seasons as much as 70% people of color. And so that contrast, I think, just echoes what Marcia's saying when we're talking about systems and I know this is one of the things we had wanted to talk about maybe was the, how the process of hiring in the NFL, but son of a gun, 90% of the decision makers in this league uh, are white men. That's probably why some of these decisions go down as they do. I mean, the the other thing to note here is that were the NFL to, again, if we're, we're talking about optical allyship or even just representation, that as the as the issues become more clear around systemic racism and structural racism and white supremacy culture and and things like that. This organization that, again, when it decides to galvanize around change or initiative or movement, things happen. Why are we going in the opposite direction in terms of coaches, black coaches? We've got less now than we did 10 years ago, than we even did five years ago. And so why are we going in that direction why are we going in that direction with positions of power and influence in the, in the NFL itself, but yet we're supposed to feel good about them when they play the black national anthem at the beginning of a game. There's, there's a degree of hypocrisy there. There's also a degree of just, it's simple marketing. Let's wear the t-shirt, but we're not really gonna change 
anything about the way we do things or anything about the way we use our muscle in communities, in states, in this country, in the economy, we're not really going to deploy our stuff to do that kind of change. It's not that level of magnitude to us. dive into the hiring of NFL coaches and the continued lackluster efforts or the continued lackluster results, I guess, maybe of the NFL's push to create or to have more uh, head coaches, particularly of color. As John said, there are 32 head coaches in the NFL. Only five right now are people of color, and that is less than when the uh, known Rooney rule went into effect at the beginning of this century, which made teams interview candidates of color uh, as part of their hiring process for any of their head coaching jobs. And there's some pretty big names right now on NFL staffs that are not head coaches right now, and one will be coaching this weekend, and that is Eric Bieniemy, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator. This is a team for three straight years has had one of the best, if not the best offenses in the NFL. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why this isn't. I know, John, we talked about this, and I think people, if they want to go back and listen to last year's Super Bowl episode, we discussed this then, too, of the systems that are in place and sort of the grooming and the the, the, the path that coaches go on to become a head coach. Because, John, you, you said when you were starting out in the NFL, you were kind of on that path, so you know it. What is it, the path that sends people to become head coaches, and why is it really failing people of color to become head coaches? Yeah, so let's look at the 2021 hiring cycle. There were seven head coaching opportunities in the NFL that came open. 11 minorities were interviewed and 16 white guys were interviewed and only two jobs uh, uh, went to people of color. Robert Salah is the uh, head coach now of the Jets Both of his parents were Lebanese immigrants, and interestingly, he's the first head coach of an NFL team that uh, is a Muslim. Uh, And the other went to a guy named Dave Cully, uh, who took the head coaching job of the Texans. And Dave has never been an offensive coordinator in the NFL. Interestingly, the other head coaches in the NFL Minority head coaches are Mike Tomlin of the Steelers, Flores of the Dolphins, and Ron Rivera of Washington. Interestingly, four of the five coaches uh, in the NFL that are uh, identified as people of color are defensive coaches. And it's going to be important because the best pathway, the most common pathway to being a head coach in the NFL is by coaching quarterbacks being an offensive coordinator, and then becoming a head coach. In fact, this year, 16, right now, 16 of the 32 NFL teams, that's 50%, have head coaches that were quarterbacks to coordinator to head coach. Now, interestingly, in this past season, there were a couple of coaches, uh, Eric Bieniemy being one, w- was a black offensive coordinator. But Eric did not call the plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. There was only one black offensive coordinator in all the NFL last year that called plays, 
and he's in the Super Bowl this week. It's Byron Leftwich. And in fact, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a, a black offensive coordinator, a black defensive coordinator in Todd Bowles, and a black special teams coordinator as well in Keith Armstrong. And so in the 2021 season, this season coming up, more coaches, more uh, uh, black men have gotten the offensive coordinator title. But I think this is important. While they've gotten that title, many of them are not going to be the play callers. And so I think that's an important distinction and something that on the outside looking in, people don't see is working against Eric Bieniemy. Eric Bieniemy has never called plays in an NFL game before. I think Eric Bieniemy should be a head coach. He certainly run meetings, all that. But that's something that has restricted him taking the next step. Uh, guys like Marcus Brady was just promoted to offensive coordinator for the Indianapolis Colts this year. He's not going to call plays. Frank Reich is a co-offensive coordinator in uh, Miami is a guy Marcia and I love and worked with Eric Studisville, a, 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 a wonderful guy, but he's not going to call plays. And so one of the things that we kind of need to distinguish is I think many staffs are trying to give people titles, but those titles, giving someone a title and giving someone that's that responsibility of calling the plays are two very different things. And it's one of the reasons that I think Eric Bieniemy is being restricted some and taking that next step and I think we're going to be hearing the name Byron Leftwich coming up uh, uh, this time next year for many head coaching opportunities because he does indeed call plays. That's an interesting distinction. I just want to say that what you just said there, John, about giving people the titles without the power uh, kind of speaks to a bit of what you were just saying before this, weren't you, Marcia, about we're putting money behind this, but it's yeah. – not the money it's not the money that's going to affect change and it's not true yeah it's not true structural change so i want to notice something just around our language here too because we're talking about an, an organization where um bodies of color by or as resma menachem says bodies of culture are the majority and but we're still using this kind of deficit-based language of minorities and so I, I kind of want to invite us to think around some different ways of talking about um, those people who identify as black, brown, indigenous people in um, in the NFL. Because, I mean, whereas minority might still be a technically correct term in our larger culture, it's still a deficit based word it's it's about it's comparing it to whiteness or the white majority and it might change the way we even think or feel if we use some other asset based language which is um that you know black and brown bodied people who work in the nfl um are actually actually represent the majority of the of people who are in this organization and in this institution, and that that is an asset 
It is not a deficit. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that this is one of the oldest tricks in the book for white supremacy. How do we cover ourselves? Mm. How do we deflect the conversation away from structures, systems, and power? Well, we make these very visible optical. We give people titles. We give people an office. We give people, you know, it's in name only or whatever. And again, what that creates is this atmosphere in which there's an assumed deficit. Why does he have the job, but he's not calling the plays? Well, he must not be able to handle it. And embedded in that is an anti-blackness that is so much a part of white supremacy culture. And again, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book. You don't have to say it out loud, but you embody it. You practice it. You habituate it in creating these positions in name only. And then what is that doing? It's kind of a, it's, it's affirming the stereotype this anti-blackness that's unspoken in the NFL that people of color don't have the same competencies as white people. It's manifested itself in different ways through the years in the NFL. And this is its latest cover, right? But it's still maintaining white power in the system. And it's very sneaky. White supremacy is very, very sneaky. It can shape shift and it's always going to adapt to new situations to protect itself. And it teaches us to look at things in terms of deficits. And, and that's why I'm challenging our language and I'm challenging the way we even talk about this situation, that it's that we look at the way people are pushed to the margins by white supremacy, the way people are disempowered by white supremacy, the way people are, um, their competencies are not what, what we make space for. Instead, we entrench this narrative around deficit. And I don't know if that, if I'm making sense here, um, but it feels important to name some of this around this kind of, you know, we can sort of be like, well, why, what's going on there? This is sort of curious, you know, but what's going on there is white supremacy is protecting itself and it's very good at it. It's very, very good at it. And we'll be back in just a moment here on Going Deep, continuing this conversation ahead of Super Bowl 55. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're back on Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the show. Joining me are the hosts, John and Marsha Mountjoup via Zoom. We're talking about coaching in the NFL and its efforts to diversify the amount of head coaches in the NFL that are people of color. And we've had a very, very engrossing conversation here about, we've talked about language, we've talked about power structures. And we've talked about how this comes up through assistant coaches and how the league is, is set that up. And again, I, I certainly invite people to go back and listen to last year's Super Bowl episode, because unfortunately we were talking about many of the same problems. Um, 
But John, you did talk about some things the league was trying to do to improve this, but what really would it take for it to improve this? Again, when it's 90% of the people in these positions of power in the NFL are white in a league that at times has, as you said, up to 70 or more than 70% of its players are people of color, what really will change this to reflect it and make it more reflective uh, of society and the league itself? Well, the wheels are turning in some ways, but they're turning slowly. For instance, uh, we're going to see quarterbacks, more and more quarterbacks in the NFL are brown and black-skinned men. And, you know, we're not even having the conversation right now about Patrick Mahomes uh, being a black man uh, quarterbacking in the Super Bowl, whereas when Doug Williams did it, 25 years ago, I mean, this was a monumental occasion. And so that's changing. And from the quarterback position, I'm telling you, from the quarterback position, everything in an NFL's franchise starts to change. And so as we see more black and brown skin bodies at quarterback, we'll see more as quarterback coaches. And as we see, and and that is happening, in fact, that is happening. And as we see more as quarterback coaches, then we'll see more, hopefully, in the coming years as play callers. And as we said, 50% of the coaches in the NFL right now rose to that position from the quarterback offensive play calling position. And so I think the quarterbacks now evolving is making the quarterback coaches or or is at least the first piece of momentum going towards now quarterback coaches. And then hopefully in years to come, you know, by hopefully sooner rather than later, we're not talking about play callers the same way we were talking about Doug Williams being the first uh, black quarterback to coach in the Super Bowl, what was that, 25 years ago or so? 33, I had to look that up as you were talking. Yeah. So, uh, I, But that's a very slow process, and I think this also mimics society, in American society, yeah. certainly, of we have these massive issues that we're trying to tackle in racism and white supremacy, and these ways that we can address this, they really take so long, Yeah. and these issues are so pressing every day, Yeah. and that's the frustration. Well, they're pressing. That's... Um, what you just said, Matt, is the heart of the matter. They're pressing every day for who. And I think the the way that this all works is that it's, in, you know, white identified people, people who move around the world as white um, can default into a mode in which these aren't pressing issues. And black indigenous people of color don't have that option. And until we have a culture shift um, in which white people also think we don't have an option, that these are pressing issues that we can't go on like this, then there are we're going to continue with these kind of optics of of change that don't really change structures. So the culture, like for instance, in the NFL, if you have um bodies of color, bodies of culture, however you want to describe 
that if you have them in issue in positions of prominence and positions of um, power, we still have to investigate what actual culture changes are manifested in the, in that. Um, are we only you know, giving those jobs to people who comport themselves a certain way or serve to protect the status quo. Because real culture change in the NFL is going to mean um, some shakeups to the power structure. If you had a culture change in the NFL that really was about solidarity with, with Black, Indigenous, people of color, the players are going to have more power. They're going to have more formal power in the system. And the union wouldn't be necessarily the, the holder of that. It would be new structures at the decision-making table. It, would be new, it wouldn't just be representation. It would be new ways of making decisions, new ways of doing business. That's when you know that culture change has happened not just when there are certain people in certain positions. And again, that only shakes loose when whiteness begins to be interrogated. And this reminds me of, you know, back when we used to be in this world of professional football and I, as a feminist, you know, was asking questions of people in positions of power around culture change for women. Um, and, you know, now more and more we've got women in different positions in the NFL. Does that really signal a culture change? Or is it, um, is it a, a kind of, of more of an optics of inclusion that still, um, that allows there to be a release of tension, a release of pressure? Uh, everybody can take a collective deep breath. We've got a one official now we got two women coaches in this Super Bowl you know let's take a deep breath whoo the NFL isn't so misogynist anymore we can all feel good about it but what do these women you know what do these women have to carry into that office every day to do their job what is it really like to be a woman in these structures and systems and and that's a that's a question we don't know the answer to that we don't know the answer to that but if for it to signal some you know real structural change real culture change it would have to sound something like i feel like i can really be myself there i feel like i'm embraced for who i am as a woman not i have to play that down or i'm the exception or i'm this or i'm that but I'm myself, and this feels like a really life-giving place to be. I think it's safe to say one of the topics we're not going to be able to get to today on the show was a bit more going into that, but the culture change really isn't there in the NFL right now, at least when it comes to uh, more women. We obviously said two uh, women assistant coaches this weekend on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The first woman official will be uh, the down judge. Sarah Thomas will be the down judge at the Super Bowl this year. Uh, but the culture change really isn't there because one of the things we were going to talk about was domestic violence. And you know, I was had a player for the Seattle Seahawks, Chad Wheeler, who was arrested, immediately cut from the team from a very, very – 
uh, brutal um, incident. But two of the star wide receivers on this weekend, each team, uh, you know, Tyreek Hill for the Kansas City Chiefs and Antonio Brown for the Buccaneers, they have history of domestic violence and they're playing. And they are amongst the stars of those teams. Um, so that culture change certainly hasn't affected in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, th- now I don't, I'm going to confess, y'all, I don't really pay as much attention to the NFL as I used to. <laughs> so I don't know all the ins and outs of the Seattle player. But I, if I had to guess, if I was a betting woman, I would guess he probably wasn't a key player. I would guess that their ability to cut him from the team with such a with such precision and decisiveness indicates that he may not have been one of their best players. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong. It's just a guess from all the years that I was up close with that. You tend to see um, a little bit more um, examples made of players that aren't as good. Um, Those who are really great players can get away with um, more stuff. At least that's how it was when we were in the NFL, wouldn't you say, John? When I remember as a young coach with the Carolina Panthers, a wise, wise man, a a coach named Richard Williamson, who's since passed, but one of the best coaches I've ever been around. He was our wide receivers coach. And he said, uh, there's a direct correlation. In fact, it's a sliding scale. The more touchdowns you score, the bigger a-hole you're allowed to be. The fewer touchdowns you score, the more you better be a good guy. (laughs) And we were having this conversation about when the Panthers were trying to decide whether to draft a certain player or not. And we took them off the board. The Panthers did. Our general manager, Bill Polian, said we're not going to draft them based on character issues. And Richard Williamson was like, I sure want to coach that guy. I, I could handle him. And you're exactly right. Tyreek Hill and Antonio Brown score an awful lot of touchdowns uh, uh, for the teams that they play on. Chad Wheeler was a backup journeyman offensive lineman uh, for the Seattle Seahawks. That is, it's just the way that it is, you know, and uh, we learned that lesson early on. The player that we were talking about in that instance was uh, Randy Moss at the Carolina Panthers when he was coming out as a a draft uh, pick. And then uh, I had the pleasure, interestingly, of coaching Randy Moss later in my career when he was at the Oakland Raiders. And uh, he was one of the sharpest and most astute football minds I'd ever been around. It's interesting. See, I, that's a whole nother show. But the way the word character can mm. be veiled for, you know, kind of, appe- you know, appeasing to white people or whatever. And I really, I enjoyed those years when you coached Brandy.
we've come to the end of the show. Some topics we weren't able to get into the show we weren't able to get into, but certainly things we can examine in future episodes, including one uh, we were going to talk about Urban Meyer's hiring with Jacksonville Jaguars. But uh, to be honest, if fans or listeners of the show want to know what John and Marsha would think of whether or not he will succeed at Jacksonville, please go back and listen to the episode where we discuss the differences between coaching in the college level and at the pro level, and you will get the answer to that. And, and in short, no. So, and that's even with the possibility of Trevor Lawrence. So we come here to the end, and that is the prediction time. Uh, Marsha and I will go first, but we have the Buccaneers and the Chiefs, sort of a, a generational battle here between quarterbacks, between Tom Brady with the Buccaneers now in his 10th Super Bowl, first one without New England, and Patrick Mahomes in his second consecutive one and uh, was the winner last year. So Marsha and I will go first, who we think might win. Yeah, and I'm just going to say that I, I'm sorry. i sorry. I respect him as a player. I know he's amazing in lots of ways, but I just can't. I'm just not a Tom Brady fan, so I'm going to go for the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. I'm not a Tom Brady fan either, but I find it very, very difficult to predict against him. So uh, I'll, I'll take the Buccaneers. So, John, you get to be the uh, tiebreaker here today, and you're, you're the football expert, so you let us know. Neither one of these quarterbacks would I bet against, Mahomes or Tom Brady. But, boy, this is a tough one, and it could go either way, but Tom Brady is in his 10th Super Bowl. We're going to talk not about Tom Brady as the best. He, he's, he is the best football player ever to play the game. And in my opinion, it's not even close. We may talk about Tom Brady as the greatest American athlete by the time he retires. To go to 10 Super Bowls and still be playing at his level at age 43, I cannot bet against him. And... At age 43, I kind of, I'm kind of rooting for him too. Which I, which there's been a lot of times in my career where I hadn't, especially he, he'd been a rock in my shoe a few Sundays. You've been listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.